Temptation. People all over the globe were are reading it on a weekly basis. It was being published in over 5,000 newspapers across the United States and several internationally. In 1965, a gentleman named Max Hernandez approached Charles Schultz. He was an executive producer with CBS Television. And he said that CBS wanted to produce a Christmas special featuring peanuts, and it would be sponsored by Coca-Cola. Interestingly enough, Charles Schultz, within 24 hours, had developed an outline. And that outline, if you've ever watched the, the Christmas special, held true throughout the whole production. It was about a small Christmas pageant, a... A uh, mix of uh, traditional Christmas music along with jazz music. It was a little scrawny Christmas tree. But the climax of the story was, and always has been, the reading of the scripture at the end. When Schultz, uh, when Schultz gave this outline to Hernandez, Hernandez was kind of taken back about it a little bit. He, he wasn't sure that CBS would accept the reading of scripture on a network television production. So Charles Schultz looked him in the eye and he said this, if I don't tell them, who will? Later on, Schultz was asked about that meeting that he had with Menendez, and he said, I had made it up in my heart that if they wouldn't take the Scripture, they wouldn't have my characters. Because after all, Christmas is about Christ. Always has been, always will be. Sometimes we get so consumed by what the world has to sell that we forget what God has already given us, don't we? Christmas isn't just about buying gifts. It's about the birth of a king. It's not about toys for children. It's about tribute to a savior. Christmas truly is joy to the world for the Lord has come. I want to read that scripture with you again uh, very quickly and, and just talk about a few things that are in there. Luke chapter number two, beginning at verse number eight. The Bible says this. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, an angel, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said one to another, Let us go even now into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad, saying, which was told to them concerning the child. Now, I want you to imagine the scene with me for just a few minutes. Here's a group of guys who are doing what they've done probably hundreds of times over. They are outside the city of Bethlehem. They are in, a, in an area that is rocky. Uh, the terrain is very steep. It's probably kind of dusty out there. It's dark. Most people have gone to bed at this time of day or night. But these guys are just beginning their work. They're looking for maybe just a rock to sit on. And, and, and this week, as I was, I was imagining what these guys may have been going through, they were probably drinking something like gas station coffee. You know what I mean? Some of that good stuff. They're sitting out there in the field, and they're watching these, these flocks. They're protecting them from predators. And all of a sudden, God opens up the heavens. 
Now keep in mind, for 400 years, there had been absolute silence in the nation of Israel from God. From the close of the book of Malachi until this time, God had not spoken to the nation as a whole. For 400 years, this nation had been asking the question, where is God? What has happened to God? Why is God no longer speaking to us? Why can't we get a word from God anymore? And now all of a sudden, out in the middle of this field, to a group of guys who are just kind of minding their own business, without any warning, God pulls back the curtain of that silence. And he begins to speak to them. These shepherds find themselves in the presence of an army of angels making an announcement that would forever change the world. Now, notice who the angels are speaking to, these men that we're talking about. Two times in the scripture that we read this morning, they are identified as shepherds, verse number 8 and verse number 16. Now, shepherds in biblical history had, had a place of prominence. If you begin to research throughout the Old Testament, you'll find shepherds were involved in many, many things that took place. Many great events, many great movements of God were brought in by shepherds. The first shepherds identified to us in Genesis chapter number 4 and verse number 9 when the Bible tells us that Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, was a shepherd. We know that it was Abel who first taught us how to make a sacrifice to God. It was Abel who brought that blood sacrifice, that first acceptable sacrifice to God. Abel who became the first martyr of faith. Later on, we would read about a man named Abraham. You remember Abraham? You know what Abraham did for a living? You want to guess? He's a shepherd, right? <laughs> that was on the tip of your tongue. I know it was coming. Abraham was a shepherd. We know he was a wealthy shepherd. Abraham, who would become a father of the nation of Israel itself. Abraham, a man who lived by faith, who's listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith in the book of Hebrews. Later on, God would take a man named Moses, who we know was tending his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of the desert. That means he was way out there in the boondocks. He was way out there, and he was tending sheep. God took Moses, a shepherd, and used him to deliver a nation from bondage. Later on, the first anointed king by God, the first God-anointed king of Israel, a man named David, was tending his father's sheep when Samuel came to anoint him. King David, the greatest king in the history of the nation. King David, the man who would later on and go and pin the words that would compare the Lord to the shepherd when he said, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. So we can see in biblical history how shepherds had a place of prominence. But by the time you come to the New Testament, to the scripture we read this morning, shepherds were, were no longer seen as great men. They were no longer seen as the leaders. They were no longer seen as people who were close to God or who could uh, be used of God. They were the lowest of the lowly. You know, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. The nation of Israel's relationship with God had become very skewed at this time. There wasn't, there wasn't any relationship, matter of fact. They had lost that closeness. They had lost that ability to see what God was doing in their lives and to follow after God's leadership. And it began not with their actions, that, that loss of that, that commitment and that closeness. It didn't begin, begin with their actions. It began with their thinking. They began to think, um, think in ungodly ways. They began to call that which is evil good and that which was good evil. And, and they lost that walk with God. I was thinking about that a little bit this week. You know, when the devil begins to attack us, he doesn't attack us physically initially. He doesn't get us to do things physically that are, that are wrong initially. Where he begins to work on us is in our minds. He begins to, to plant thoughts in our minds and cause us to think in ways that just aren't right. 
The devil would rather control your mind than control your body because he knows ultimately if he controls your mind, he will control your body. He'll cause you to justify things that are wrong in your own mind. You'll, you'll try to justify your actions that you know aren't right. You'll, you'll try to uh, look at things that you are thinking and th- things that you are doing and things that you are saying, and you're saying, well, you know, it's okay that I do that because so-and-so does much worse, or it's okay that I do that because this person did this to me. And, and the truth is, folks, the devil likes to play those mind games. I hope you know that. He likes to get in your head, get in between your ears, and live rent-free for a long time. And he'll cause you to think things before he'll cause you to do things. Israel's actions had been, had been justified in their own mind by their thoughts. And now we come to these shepherds, men who were once heralded as, as leaders within a nation. Now they are the lowliest of the low. These guys are the ones that usually when someone passes away, they'll call them to come get the bodies. Now, to us today, that isn't a big deal, but to them, it was a huge deal. You see, once they carried those bodies, once they buried those bodies, then they were unclean. And being unclean, it meant they couldn't even go into a temple to worship. By the time uh, of this scripture here, we know that these men could not testify in a court of law. You say, Tony, I understand, I get it, that these guys were were low. What what does that have to do with anything? Think about it for just a moment. If a king were going to be born today, who would be the first to know it? I did a little research just last night, actually. Um, Prince Harry. You guys know who Prince Harry is? And his wife, uh, Megan. I had to write her name down because I knew I'd never remember. I'm just not that kind of person that follows these things. They had a baby back on May the 6th of this year, 2019. They made a huge announcement to the whole wide world when that baby was born. But that announcement came a couple of hours after the actual birth of the child. The public didn't necessarily know that, but it was true. When they made their initial announcement, you know who they announced it to? They announced it to the Queen of England. They announced it to a couple of members of her royal staff. They brought in the Prime Minister of England to let him know. They brought in a couple of Saudi Arabian kings to let them know. They had kind of a video teleconference. They brought in one reporter from People magazine and one, uh, one social media guru, I don't, know, I don't even remember his name. But the point I'm making is, when that king came, it was the elite who knew. It was those who were up the, the ladder of, of, of community hierarchy. It was the wealthy, it was the famous, it was the, it was the, the beautiful, it, it, was, it was the rich. All of these people who were way up the ladder were the first to know when royalty came into the world. So wouldn't it make sense that when God was going to bring his child into the world, he would, he would bring in the royalty. He would bring in the high and mighty. He would look for the wealthy. He would look for those who were heralded by, by the world as being great. You would think that maybe he would announce it in Rome first. I mean, that was the political power of the world. Or, or how about in Athens, Greece, the intellectual capital of the world. Or even in Jerusalem where all the religious people hung out. You would think that that would be the place where God would say, here is the Savior of the world. But it wasn't. He spoke first to lowly shepherds. I wonder why. Maybe it would be because God wanted the world to understand that his son didn't come just for the rich. And didn't come just for the high and mighty. His son didn't come for just those who were up the social ladder. He didn't come for just the beautiful. He came for all. 
He came for the kings, and he came for the princes. He came for those who are rich, but he also came for those who are poor. He came for those who are born Caucasian and those who are born black, those who are born yellow. He came for those who have a great education. He came for those who have no education. He came for those who live on the left side of the tracks and those who live on the right side of the tracks. Jesus came for all. (laughs) He came for you, right? Give him praise. He's worthy of that. He came for you. You know, I, I was thinking some this past week. The world has changed so much, even in my lifetime. I don't consider myself very old, but, it's, you know, the world has gone through some drastic changes. People are more connected now than they've ever been. Um, Curry, I don't know if you know this. We were in the mountains this week, and we were actually talking about you guys because we'd seen pictures where y'all were in the mountains earlier this week. And we were, we were wondering if the airs were still in the mountains. I was hoping I was going to go see if Kirk buy my dinner or something, but I never could find him. He was hiding from me, I think. Next time, okay, next time. Promises, promises. So uh, anyway, we're, we're more connected than we've ever been before. Through uh, the ease of, of travel, the ease of communication, everybody's got their cell phones. That blessed thing we call social media. Don't you love that stuff? Uh, people are just never alone anymore. We're never alone. Never by ourselves. We're never isolated. But, but here's what, here's what um, scientists, healthcare professionals, people who deal in psychology are, are beginning to learn. That even though people are never isolated, there are so many people who are never really connected either. And they, they spend their lives feeling like they're by themselves. And, and what it amounts to is that humans are designed to have close personal relationships have intimate relationships and with the way that we're connected now so often so much so regularly we have so many individuals in our lives that it's hard to truly connect with a handful of select individuals to have those special relationships have you ever heard anybody say I can be sitting in a room full of people and still feel like I'm all alone there are a lot of people who are living life that way probably people sitting right here this morning you understand what I'm saying You can be surrounded, but yet there's nobody that you really feel cares for you, uh, loves you, that that you're close to. You feel like that nobody cares about you. Sometimes people feel like they're just not important. Some people feel like that their lives are absolutely worthless. If you're one of those people this morning, I want you to listen to what I'm about to tell you. That is nothing more than a lie. It is a lie of the devil himself. He is is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. He is trying to make you think wrong in order that he can get you to do wrong. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that God knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. The Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God himself constructed you the way that you are. And he cares about you very deeply. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 43. I love this scripture. He says, I have called you by name. And listen, three words right here, very powerful. You are mine. You belong to the Lord. He said, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The lions, you guys seen Lion King? Love that movie. The lions have their pride. Honeybees, they have their swarm. Birds have their flocks. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, you have a heavenly father above. 
who cares about you and knows you very intimately and never wants you to be alone. One of the most amazing people that I've ever had the opportunity to pastor was a lady who didn't become a follower of Jesus until she was in her 30s. Uh, amazing story. One Sunday, I'm, I'm uh, going into the sanctuary before service starts. And I walk in, and she's the only one in there. And she's sitting there, and tears are just streaming down her face. And she's got her eyes closed and her hands raised up in the air just like this. So I'm, I'm at that point of decision, you know, that kind of awkward moment where you think, okay, do I go on in? Do I ease back out? What do I do right here? So I just kind of freeze for a second, and it was, it was like God just opened her eyes at that minute, that moment. She looked directly at me, and I said, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to disturb you. And she said, oh, that's okay, Donnie. She said, I just couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to, to get in here and, and to worship the Lord. And I said, I understand. And this is what she says. No, you probably really don't. And I said, okay. I didn't know what to say at that point. I said, okay. And she said, let me tell you. So she begins to tell me her story. I knew a little bit of it, but I didn't know all the details. I never asked. So she begins to tell me the details. She said, I was abused as a child. I was physically abused. I was emotionally abused. I was sexually abused. And by the time I was 13 years old, I, I was looking for ways to dull that pain, to forget about it. I began drinking. By the time I was 17, I had moved on from alcohol into taking pills. I had some friends who could get their hands on pills, and, and we began to take those. By the time I was 18, I was stealing from my family to get money to buy those pills. She said, I spent a little time in YDC before I became an adult and learned some really, really good techniques for being a better criminal. She said, well, I was married when I was 20. By the time I was 22, I had two children and a drug problem. By age 25, I was divorced and had lost custody of my children. I wasn't fit to raise my kids. The state took them away from me. December, Christmas Day, 2007, this is what she says. I'm sitting on my couch trying to decide how I want to end my life. I have a gun in front of me, and I have a big bottle of pills. And I'm just trying to figure out if I want to take those pills or if I would just want to put the gun to my head and pull the trigger. And I hear a knock on my door, and one of the ladies who live next door to me in an apartment is saying my name. She said, I, I went over to the door, really didn't want to, and opened the door, and she just walked in. Didn't ask if she could come in or anything. She just walked right in. And she said, hey, I, I just wanted to come over and invite you to go to lunch with us today. I, I know you don't have any family around here, and we didn't want you to be alone, so just come and go to lunch with us. Now, this is her story. And she said, all of a sudden, I just couldn't say anything. I just started crying. I broke down in tears, and I sat down there on the couch. And I'm just crying, and she's asking me what's going on, what's wrong with me. And I can't say a word. And my neighbor immediately just begins to pray. And she prays the sweetest little prayer. Jesus, I don't understand what's happening here. But I know you do. And Jesus, she needs you. This is what she says. <laughs> she was right. I needed Jesus. I needed him right then. I felt like that there was nobody in the world who loved me, nobody who cared about me. I felt like I wasn't worth anything, and I needed Jesus to come in. So she said, I began to pray this. I prayed, Jesus, help me to forget the pain. Help me to break the chains of the drug abuse. Jesus, save me. And you know, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? 
When you pray that prayer, it doesn't, it doesn't take two days, two weeks, two months, two years, or even two seconds. It's instantaneous. She said, right then, Jesus changed my life. Just sitting inches away from two things that were going to take my life, he gave me a brand new life. Now, isn't that some good stuff? Jesus came for all. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your background is like. It doesn't even matter what you're dealing with right now. Just know this, that God loves you with an an everlasting love, and he sent his son Christ to come into your life and to make a change in you to help you let go of the past, to help you get through the day. So so that's the men. Let's think about just common people. Jesus came for all. But what about the message? I love what the King James says here. Uh, verse number 9, I, I was reading some other, some other translations of it, and the last two words, I want you to look at those real quickly. Other translations will say they were terribly afraid or they were greatly afraid, but I think I relate more to the King James on this where it says they were sore afraid because I, I'm just going to be honest with you guys. If I'm standing out in the middle of the field minding my own business and I see an army of angels appear all of a sudden out of nowhere or out of anywhere, they, they could actually tell me that's coming they got there, and I'd still have the same reaction. I'd be sore afraid, too. I would be very sore from running as fast as I could to get away from that place, right? I mean, it, it would have to be a terrifying thing to, to all of a sudden just see, just see the angel of the Lord appear before you and begin to speak to you. Terrifying fear. Do you know what fear is? Fear is one of the greatest adversaries anybody will ever face. Fear, that thing that can cause, uh, cause your mind to go uh, crazy, that, that thing that can cause it to run wild or it can paralyze it. Fear sometimes can make your legs feel like a bowl of jello, but it can also make your body stiff as a board. Fear will cause your heart to race, but it can also cause it to come completely to a stop. Fear is the predator that kind of hangs around the corner. Lurks in the shadows, waiting to pounce on you when you least expect it. I, I, I researched that phrase, sore afraid. Sore afraid is used one other time. The English version of it is used one other time in the Bible. It's over in the book of Exodus, chapter number 14, verse number 10, when it says the Israelites were sore afraid. Well, what are they afraid of? Well, you know the backstory to that. The backstory to that, that chapter is that uh, Moses had come into Egypt, they had walked out of Egypt. And now the Bible says that as they are going across the desert, that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh uh, goes beyond disappointment. He goes beyond uh, grief. He goes beyond hurt to absolute hatred. He begins to hate the Israelites. So this is what the Bible says. It says that Pharaoh got together all the chariots of Egypt, including 600 special chariots, which meant his special forces. Pharaoh gets together his entire army and all of his green berets and all of his army rangers and all of his navy seals, and he goes out to pursue Israel. Now, now keep in mind, when he goes out to pursue them, he's not going to have a talk with them. He's not going to have some kind of uh, court case to be settled later on down the road. He's not going to have it mediated. He's not going to go and impose some kind of fine on them. He is going to kill them. He's going to annihilate them, wipe them off the face of the earth because he hates them. He hates who they are. He hates what they've done. And now they are walking across the desert, and he is on horseback. Think about this for just a second. They are walking along in their Jerusalem cruisers, as I call them, their sandals. 
and he is riding in chariots with wheels of iron and steel. The Israelites are, are, are moving across that desert and they can hear the pounding of the hoofs of the horses as they are coming up behind them. They look back and they see their past catching up to them and they look forward and they see an insurmountable object in front of them. And the Bible says they are sore afraid. They are terrified. They are terrified of what is coming their way. They are terrified of the consequences of that next moment. They are terrified of not what they know, but what could be as well. In the distance, they hear the assassins coming to annihilate them. And this is what Moses says to them. Think about this now. He says, fear not. Fear not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. For the Egyptians that you see today, you will see no more. And God says this. He says to go forward. Don't be afraid and just move forward. What in the world? I mean, let's, let's just talk about real life here. I am terrified. I look back and I see my past behind me. And I look in front of me and I just see there's no way to move forward. And the Lord tells me to just keep going. Not to be afraid. You know, I, I heard an interesting uh, story a couple of weeks ago. Did you guys know there's a salmon shortage right now? Salmon, if you're from Lindell, like me, we call it salmon. If you're from Armurchie, you've probably got your own name, but most people call it salmon or salmon. Sorry. Salmon shortage. It, it has become such a popular fish that they can't keep enough of it caught and processed now. And there's even some thought that the grizzly bears are becoming more aggressive up in Canada because they're not getting as much food. And I know when I don't get enough to eat, I get a little hungry too, a little angry too, right? Years ago, the popular fish wasn't salmon, though. You, you guys know what it was? It was codfish. Salmon's caught on the West Coast. Codfish is caught on the East Coast. Codfish would be caught on the East Coast. It first took hold in the Northeast, New York, Boston, all those kind of places. People love that codfish. It spread on down the East Coast, people loving it. And then people on the West Coast started demanding it too. Well, here's what they did. They would go out and they would catch the fish and they would put it on ice and they would put it on a truck and they would carry it over to the West Coast and the people would eat it. The problem was is that when they trucked it across the country on ice, the people on the West Coast would say, well, it doesn't have the flavor that it does on the East Coast. We don't like it near as much. So they weren't having as many sales. So they came up with another idea. They said, we're not going to ship it on ice. We're going to put it in these big water tanks, and we're going we're gonna to put it on a train, and we're going to send that train to the West Coast with the fish still alive. Sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like a perfect idea. Well, here's what they found out. By the time they got to the West Coast, the taste was okay now, but it was the texture that was different. Wasn't quite like it was freshly caught out of the Atlantic and eaten there in New York City. So they began to do a little research. And here's what they, they initially arrived at. That these fish that they were putting in the tanks essentially were floating for three days between New York or the East Coast, Boston Harbor, wherever, and Los Angeles, California. They weren't doing anything. They were just kind of floating around in the tank, kind of having a day at the beach like, you know, just kind of laid back, taking it easy. Not knowing what was coming, by the way, that they were about to die. But they were just floating around and they lost some of that that intensity. They lost that, that muscle, I guess you would say. They lost the texture. Here's what they did. 
the catfish is the natural predator to the codfish. So they took and they began to put catfish in the tanks with the codfish. So literally for three days, these guys are swimming for their lives. Can you imagine the scene in those tanks? You ever seen Nemo? <laughs> the, the daddy in Nemo, when, when the whale gets after him, that would be a codfish on his way to Los Angeles. But, but here's what it was. It took that, that tribulation. It took that, that trial in order to keep the fish as it should be, in order to keep it strong, in order to keep it healthy. Now, now let's go back. Let, let's think about this. Let's, let's put it all together. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse number 3, that suffering produces endurance. The Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse number 2 that the testing of our faith produces patience. If you live long enough, I can guarantee you this. You are going to have troubles. You're going to have trials. You're going to have those tribulations. There are things that are going to come along in your life and it's going to seem like the world is just caving in and that it never does you any good. But I want to tell you something. It's those things that causes us to have enduring kind of faith. Because let's be honest. You don't know what real prayer is until you get in one of those spots where you can do absolutely nothing about it. You don't know what real faith is until it seems like your hands are tied and the world is just going to fall in. God allows things to come into our lives. Sometimes God places things in our lives to cause our faith to be vibrant. He puts that catfish in the tank for us to keep us moving forward in our faith. But remember what the Scripture said. It said to fear not. They were not to be afraid. This was a time uh, of a terrifying circumstance, but yet they were not to be afraid. Hmm. How in the world do we go through tough times and not get afraid? Well, let me tell you, it's a matter of faith, right? Think about it. Not being afraid in hard times is a matter of who we trust and how much we trust him. The Bible says this, that greater is he, you know this scripture, don't you? I ought to let some of you guys finish it. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Over in the book of Timothy, the Bible, uh, 2 Timothy, the Bible tells us this. That God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. In John 16, Jesus said this. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The angel said, look in verse number 10. The angel said, fear not. For I bring you good tidings of great joy. God has a plan for your life. God has an has a, uh, unexplainable love for you. And with that unexplainable love and that perfect plan, we can go through life even when tribulation comes and not be afraid. There are those men. There's the message. But what I really like is verse number 11, the miracle of it. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, I want to tell you something. 
if man's greatest need would have been education, you know what God would have done? He'd have sent a teacher. If man's greatest need had been uh, money, God would have sent an economist. If man's greatest need would have been policy, God would have sent a politician. Lord, help us. But God saw our greatest need as forgiveness. So look what it says in verse number 11. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He sent us a Savior. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible also says the wages of sin is death. But then it goes on and says, but the gift of God is eternal life. Christ is a gift to us to bring us into a place of eternal life, to give us forgiveness of our sins, to allow that past to stay behind us, washed away in a sea of forgetfulness. He sent us a Savior. But look what else it says. Not only is he a Savior, he is also Christ. Now, we need, we need forgiveness, but we also need assurance, right? Everybody likes to be sure that what they believe is truly true. The Bible begins to talk about God's plan of redemption all the way back in the book of Genesis. It began all the way in the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to go through that. But all the way through the Old Testament, you keep seeing this promise pop up, this promise that God is going to send a a Savior. He's going to send a Redeemer, that He is coming to pay for man's sins and to give men uh, a brand new lease on life, to give men an opportunity to walk differently than they have ever walked before, to be able to let go of the things that haunt us and to grasp hold of those things which are before us, the glory of God. All through the Old Testament, that promise is given, it's 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 given. And man keeps asking, where is the Christ? Where is the Christ? Where is the Christ? God said he was going to send him. We hadn't seen him yet. Where is the Christ? Well, now in the book of Luke, God says, look, here's, here, here he is. He's come. He's not just coming, but he has come. And he is Savior, but he is also Christ the Lord. It's God's promise fulfilled. You know why that's important to me? And you know why it should be important to you? Because the Bible, this book right here, you see this book? This book is full of God's promises. It's full of promises that says, look, you don't have to live life under the burden of your sin. You can come to Christ and be forgiven. It's a book that says you don't have to walk through this life alone because there is one who will never forsake you. His name is Jesus. He'll go through the fires with you. This book says that you don't have to live your life in total fear and chaos, wondering what's going to happen tomorrow because you know who's in control of tomorrow and that he does love you with an everlasting love and that all things work to the good for those who love God and who are called according to his glory. This is God's promise fulfilled. They are saying, here is the Savior who is also the Christ, and he is also, what's that last one? Lord. He is Lord over all. I love the fact that Jesus was not only a Savior, and Jesus is not only the Christ, God's fulfilled promise, but he is also Lord. You remember that song we used to sing as children? He's got the whole world. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. I hadn't sang that song probably in 40 years. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. Thank you, Kurt. In his hands, he's got you and me, sister. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother. In his hands. Y'all do this last line. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's Lord. The Bible says that all things were created by him 
and that all things were created for him. That means the stars in the heavens were created by him and for him. That means the, the grasses of the fields were created by him and for him. That means every person. You ever thought about that? We usually ascribe that scripture to inanimate objects. Every person was created by him and for him. That means you are his. And the purpose of your life is to serve him. Mary had a little lamb who lived before his birth. The self-existent son of God from heaven came to earth. Mary had a little lamb. You can see him in yonder stall. Virgin-born son of God to save us from the fall. Mary had a little lamb who was crucified on a tree. The sacrificial son of God. There he died to set me free. Mary had a little lamb, a mystery to behold. From the lamb of Calvary, a lion will unfold. When the day star comes again of this, be very sure. It won't be with a sacrificial lamb, but with a lion's roar. Mary had a little lamb. His name is Jesus. He is Savior. He is Christ the Lord. When the walls are caving in, Jesus is on his throne. When the tears fall like raindrops, Jesus is on the throne. When life falls apart, Jesus is on the throne. When sin overwhelms, Jesus is on the throne. When despair grips your heart, Jesus is on the throne. When confusion clouds your mind, Jesus is on the throne. And today, that same Jesus who is on the throne stands with arms open wide, and he says, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. For my grace is sufficient for all your needs. I will supply all your needs according to my riches and glory. Where sin does abound. I know I'm just throwing scripture out there now. Is there anything better to throw? Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. He came for me and he came for you. Christ, Savior, and Lord. Would you bow with me, Father? Today is just a, a special day to be in your house. It's special because we're in the presence of a king. Father, today we ask that as we sing this invitation that your spirit would just move in our hearts. And Jesus, those with great need would find great resolution right here today. If they simply just come before the king and say, Jesus, I need you. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your presence, and we thank you for your power. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning as we give a